All right. Happy Sabbath, church. Let's try that one more time. Happy Sabbath, church. Oh, great to hear your voices. A little quiet out there, but nothing wrong with that. We're glad you're here, one and all. May God's richest blessings be upon you as we worship our Lord in spirit and in truth. We do have some slides here to show you. Indeed, there they are now. And so Jesus welcomes you and we welcome you. If you're visitors here today, we hope you found your home. And we're just grateful for all our members, uh, some who have had various things have kept them out, but they're here today. What a blessing. We have a group over at Delton and we have a search and rescue team up north. So keep them in your prayers as they are um, doing a search up there. Once again, we welcome you. The sermon today is entitled, The Measure of the Gift of Christ. And just how do you measure the gift of Christ? Well, we'll do our best in the time that we have together today. But first, let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to especially speak to our hearts and minds. Help us to understand more deeply the measure of the gift of Christ. That is that gift of himself when he came on Calvary, Gethsemane, indeed his whole life, death and resurrection, but also, Lord, the gift within the gift, because when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Each one of us have one of those gifts. So help us to understand more about spiritual gifts today and be more willing to use that gift that you've given us for your glory. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We won't get through verses 7 through 16. We'll be lucky to get through about seven verses this morning. But if you want to turn there, we will be going there in just a moment. And thank you, Mom, for that scripture reading. Well, I heard of a church recently, a Sunday church, <clears throat> that had Star Wars Sunday. And this was their gimmick to get people to come. Everybody dressed as the different Star Wars characters. And they said it was great. And, it, and you know, one of their biggest crowds they'd had in a while. Well, that's one way to <laughs> grow a church. But God has a bit of a different way. He has a blueprint for growth, both numerical growth and spiritual internal growth. So both quality and quantity and it's God's blueprint that we want to follow. Amen? Not the Star Wars blueprint. And of course, that would be his own blueprint of his Bible. You know, before I forget, uh, there was a watch left in the men's room. If you've lost your watch, see George Roberts. He can help you find it because he has it. All right. So this blueprint for life, that is what we want to follow today. And so today we're going to look at seven points about spiritual gifts. Seven points about spiritual gifts. What are they? How do they work? Who has them? Those types of questions. First of all, what is a spiritual gift? That's not actually on these seven. But a spiritual gift can be sort of two things, right? It can be this amazing spiritual gift that God gives when you become a Christian that you didn't have before. I know preachers, in fact, one Jack Sequera, unfortunately, just recently passed away, but he was apparently very quiet and 
you know, couldn't speak at all, but boy, the Lord gave him a gift and he was able to speak. So it can be that, but it can also be that thing that you just are, right? You're just, you know, a friendly guy and never met a stranger. That's the gift of hospitality, right? And so I think they kind of go together, right? This thing that God has given you, but then there's these things that God gives you that are extraordinary. And so I believe it's both and they kind of mingle together. So that's what a spiritual gift is. Seven things about spiritual gifts. First of all, they are holy of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It came via grace. Amen? Just like salvation, your gift comes from grace. Secondly, it is given to all. God left none out. You can't say, well, so-and-so has a gift, but I'm not sure that I do. No, no, everybody has a gift. And they're varied gifts, and that's the beauty of them. So they're holy from grace, given to all. They are uniquely individual. Your gift is not the same as the person sitting next to you. You have different gifts, and that's a good thing. Differences in marriage, right? Different gifts in marriage are a good thing. If the two of you are exactly alike, it might not be a good thing. But it's good that you are not. Also, they grow only in the soil of humility. We'll look at that. I don't know how many of you are planting seeds these days, but um, you have to plant those in the soil. We're hoping to have a garden this year. We'll see what happens. But these gifts that God gives grow in the soil of humility. Also, they are for the common good. They're not for you. They're for the good of the whole. Beyond that, they're given to be used. Of course, that sort of seems obvious, right? Why would God give you something unless he wants you to use it? But it's clear in the scriptures that that's the case because all of us have a gift, but are we using it? Lastly, these gifts are immeasurably expensive. It costs God so much to give you these gifts. All right, the measure of the gift of Christ. We're in now Ephesians. I'm turning there myself. And if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll look at verse 1 and onward. I have the King James rendering this morning. Paul says this. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself a question. What is that word therefore, right? Because therefore is a summary statement most always, right? So it's, it's referring back to something. And I think it refers back to a lot of different things in the book of Ephesians, but I'm just gonna take you to one. Go back to verse 17 of chapter three, because this is right before the therefore where Paul says this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him, that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, more than we can imagine, according to the power that works where? In us. 
So individually in us, God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or think, and also in our corporate body together. Unto him be glory in the church. That's always the end game, right? That God be glorified. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Then Paul says, I therefore. So in the context of this, Paul says, I therefore am a prisoner of the Lord. Interesting, he's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of Nero. He is a prisoner of the Lord. Very interesting. I love what Annie Johnson Flint wrote in regard to this. The great apostle called himself the prisoner of the Lord. He was not held by Roman chains nor kept in Caesar's ward. Constrained by love alone, by cords of kindness bound, the bond slave of the living Christ, true liberty he found. Oh, happy those who see in poverty and pain, in weakness and in toil, their father's golden chain. Who feel no prison walls, though shut in narrow ways, and though in darkness fettered, fast can still rejoice and praise. From sin's dread bondage bought, they own their master's ward. They bear the brand of Christ, blessed prisoners of the Lord. Sometimes we feel imprisoned by circumstances, right? But you must know that you are the Lord's, amen? That he's still working, that he loves you, that he's got you on a journey. You're not where you used to be. You may not be where you want to be, but you're not where you used to be, amen? God is working in your life. But as Paul says, prisoner of the Lord, it's important to realize that Paul may even have had his times of, I won't say doubt, but depression or, or down times. Uh, ministers have. Christians, do any of you ever have down times? You don't have, to, don't have to raise your hands, but we do, right? We do. Ministers have, teachers have. Um, Let's make this Teacher Appreciation Day. If you see a teacher, I see Gene Anderson. I don't see a bunch of teachers in here, but they're Sabbath school teachers. Find one and say something nice because um, it's, it's really important. And I want to share a story with that about a teacher. It's a Dear Abby story, a retired school teacher. One day she had her students take out two sheets of paper and list the names of the other students in the room. Then she told them to think of the nicest Thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down next to their names. She took the papers home, compiled them all, brought back a list for each student of what others had said about him or her. Well, how do you think that went over? Well, on Monday, she gave each student his or her list long, <clears throat> I'm sorry, before long, everyone was smiling. Really? They thought that about me? That little thing made a difference to them? Well, years later, the teacher went to the funeral of one of her former students, died in Vietnam, and many from that class were at that funeral. After the service, the young man's parents approached the teacher and said, hey, come on over here, we wanna show you something. Take a look at this. Mark was carrying this when he was killed. 
The father pulled out a wallet, uh, and in the wallet was the list of all the good things that Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Well, a group of Mark's classmates overheard this conversation. One smiled sheepishly and said, I have my list. It's in my top desk drawer at home. Another said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. <clears throat> a third said, I carry mine with me at all times. At that point, the teacher sat down and cried. <laughs> she, from then on, used that assignment in every single class. You can definitely uh, believe. As Robert Orban says, and said it well, a compliment is verbal sunshine. We all need encouragement, which is like oxygen to the soul. So say something nice to somebody today. Amen? Paul was a prisoner of the Lord. Going on, it says, with all lowliness, this is the King James, that is humility and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Then verse 7, this gets very close to what we're looking at here. But unto every one of them, or every one of us individually, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wow, how do you measure the measure of the gift of Christ? Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led a host of captives, or captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. So when Christ arose, he especially gave gifts to men. Not that there were no gifts prior to that, but there was a special gifting, we could say. And then verse 9, now, the one that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. You can't really say someone went up unless they first came down in Christ's case. He that descended is the same that also ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then it lists these things that were given, right? Apostles, sent ones. I believe that's our missionaries today. Prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. That's sort of an altogether gift, pastor, teacher. For the perfecting of the saints or the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So looking now at these seven points today, we see from this scripture that these gifts are holy of grace. They're of grace and nothing else, like we had said before. Guy King, commenting on grace and peace, spoke about the Greeks. And when they did a favor for someone, the favor was always done to a friend, never to an enemy. But that's not grace, is it? No, in the case of God, it was an enemy, the sinner, bitter in his hatred of God, for whom the favor was done. God has no strings attached to his generous gift that he's proffered for man on the cross. Salvation 
is given to the believing sinner out of the pure generosity of God's heart. And also he gives to each of us a gift. So they're holy of grace and they're given to all. We don't have time to go to Luke 19 for the story of the minus, the 10 minus, right? Or pounds, depending on which translation you have, right? And how many were given a mina? Remember in that story? Everybody was given one, right? One guy came back and what had he done with his mina? He now had 10, right? Another guy came back and he had five. Another guy hid his mina in his handkerchief. Not a good idea. And he said, well, I was afraid of you, so I hid it in my handkerchief, which Jesus corrected him on. He's like, no, no, if you were afraid of me, you would have at least put it in the bank and done something with it. And so there was more than just the fear that he had. But that verse, along with others, tells us that God has given all of us gifts. He's given them to all. And then the third point is they are uniquely individual. Right? Each one of us, as I said before, are individuals. Every snowflake that falls in its molecular structure is different. Right? Your DNA is different from everybody else. And here's the exciting thing. When your DNA and your DNA and your DNA come together in a sense in the church, it becomes Christ's unique representation of himself. Now, you've got to get that, right? When all of us come together with our different uniquenesses, right, and come together, then Christ is represented by that body. Amen? He's the head, we're the body. This body isn't going to look like PMC, right? Down, down south. As um, Dwight, Elder Dwight Nelson and I, we have this running joke. He calls me king of the north. It has nothing to do with Daniel 11. It's just, we're north and he's south. But anyway, so, uh, so that guy down south, in, <laughs> I was actually there visiting last week and got to, got to talk to him a little bit. But their, their body, right, is going to look different. Their DNA, corporate DNA, is going to look different than ours, right? And so that's the uniqueness. Each of us are unique, but together we become a unique body for Christ to build one another up and to take the gospel to this community. Amen? That's what God has called us to do. Holy from grace, given to all, uniquely individual. And I guess I'll use uh, this now. I ask uh, an avid golfer to, uh, to bring me these in. Because you see, in Corinth, the problem was they were having gift exaltation. They were like, no, no, no. My gift is the greatest. No, no, no. My gift is the greatest. That's why Paul says, you know, we need hands, feet, we need it all, right? So just imagine if, if this, well, no, I'll do it the other way. <clears throat> imagine if this putter said, no, no, from now on, I want to be a sand wedge. Don't tell me I'm a putter, I'm a sand wedge. Can you imagine this in, in sand, trying to pull out of a, of a bunker? Wouldn't be easier. Is bunker the right word to use? You can tell I'm not a golfer, right? <laughs> anyway, we each have individual things that God has called us to, right? And they work together. You need both of these. You probably need a whole bunch of clubs, right, Tom? You probably have a bunch of them, don't you? Gene, how much did his clubs cost? No, no, don't, don't, let's not go there. But anyway, um, each, each have individual uses, right? Just like in the church. We're not all called to do the same thing. 
But God has called us all to do something. Fourthly, these spiritual gifts grow in the soil of humility. They grow in the soil of humility. I love what the first line is of Rick Warren. I think he is retired now. Uh, he's actually a Southern Baptist. Did any of you know that? I never, I didn't know that for years. Maybe you don't even know who Rick Warren is. Anyway, he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And in this book, sold probably sold millions of copies. It sold a lot of copies. The first line was not, in a sense, not very catchy, and in a sense, very catchy. And the first line was this. He said, it's not about you. <laughs> that's the first line in this book. And that's true with the gifts also, right? It's not about us. How many people do you know that are super talented, but they can't really be of much use because they're not humble enough to actually use their gift in the way that God would have it used. It's unfortunate. I mean, you could see many examples. We've got basketball going on now for those that watch such things. Imagine if one guy is just, you know, jacking up three-point shots, not getting his feet set, um, you know, missing everything. Um, is that going to help the team? No, it's not, right? We are a team together, amen? And we must work together using our gifts together in a humble way. And we need to be humble enough to accept others' gifts that may be a little different than what we thought also. So it kind of goes both ways. But these gifts, they grow in the soil of humility. J. Vernon McGee told a story of a group of people went in to see Beethoven's home in Germany. They were in there. They got a tour after he finished his lecture. Beethoven's piano was there, and he asked who would like to come up for a moment and play a chord or two. Well, there was a rush to go, except for one man, one gray-haired man who just wouldn't, wouldn't go up. And the tour guide said, well, wouldn't you want to play this piano? And he said, no, I don't feel worthy to play. That man was Paderewski, the great Polish statesman and pianist, probably the only guy that was really worthy to play it, but had the humility to uh, not go up there, to feel that he wasn't worthy. Andrew Murray says this, the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. God is calling us in humility to use our gifts. Amen? to be humble. Now, obviously, some of you are thinking, well, that's my problem is not that. My problem is I don't feel worthy to do anything. <laughs> and that's the other extreme, right? No, no, God has given you a gift. He's given you a uniqueness to use for him. Pray to him and ask him, what is it? We may not have the answers. Obviously, our ministry fair downstairs is not really designed to, to answer that question. There are various ministries there that might spark an interest, and we hope it will. But... For each of us, we need to pray as to what is it that God is calling us to do? What are we good at? What do we love to do? What's our sweet spot in ministry? For all of us are ministers. All of us are ministers. All right. Well, it's also these gifts are for the common good. That is the next one, right? So all of us work together for 
the common good. We talked a little bit about that. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for the common good. So we all work together. The illustration that's been used, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard by which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to, to each other than they possibly could be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. So all these gifts are for the common good, this DNA that Christ wants to give to this town, to this city of Battle Creek, and to each other, right? We're to stir one, one another up in love, right? We're to build up one another. It's a huge part of it. Now, the question could be, well, you know, then we probably shouldn't do any evangelism until we all get it right and get our gifts going. No, 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 that's, that's Greek thinking, right? Step here to step here, like linear thinking. It's more like a circle, right? As you use your gifts, we do evangelism. We do evangelism, we use our gifts more. We may even bring people in doing evangelism that will add to that DNA, amen? So it's more of a circular thing. We continue for the common good to work together for Christ's cause. Number six, and this is one where I pause a bit. These gifts are immeasurably expensive. This poor preacher can't explain to you the measure of the gift of Christ, how much it costs for your soul to be redeemed. I'll do my best. I have a couple of illustrations and a couple of things to say, but even Paul said, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We looked at those verses that this one must descend and then ascend. He had to come down, down, down. We talked about that the last couple weeks, not last week, but Easter and previous to that, about the kenosis. And we noted that that word meant the partial emptying of the divine prerogatives by Christ as he comes down, not just down to be a man, an obedient man, a live in a poor setting, right? A poor man, not just a man, but he comes all the way down and dies, not just a death, but the death of the cross. So think of the one who descended for you, unjust trials, scourging, spit upon, laughed at, abused by those who should have been caring for him. I hope that's not happened to you. The guilt of the human race pressing down upon his soul, like you see these steamrollers, these rollers on Michigan construction sites. Imagine that rolling over you. I mean, this is how he must have felt. And yet he would empty himself. He would not make himself the center, but he would empty himself and count his God-likeness not something to be held onto. 
The pent-up fires of envy and malice, hatred and revenge burst on Calvary against the Son of God while all heaven gazed upon the scene in silent horror. They couldn't speak from what they saw. What is it that sustained the Son of God during his life of toil and sacrifice? This is crucial. While looking down through the corridor of time, he saw the results of the travail of his soul, and he was satisfied. It's as if looking down through eternity, he beheld the happiness of those who through his humiliation had received pardon and everlasting life. It's as if he looked at any one of you and said, if you're going to be saved, it's worth it. I'll do it for any one of you, for you, for you, for you. I'll do it. It's worth it to me to do it. His ear caught the shout of the redeemed. He heard the ransom one singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Oh, W.W. Prescott says it well as he meditated on this sacrifice. Jesus died for me. Jesus himself told me this. He has put this assurance in my heart and mind. He loved me and gave himself for me. My iniquity was laid upon him. He bore my sin. He died in my place. He has laid down his life for me as if I were the only one to be redeemed. That he should leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. You count it strange? So do not I, since I have known my Savior. May had there been in all this wide, wide world no other soul beside but only mine, that he would have died, that he might be its Savior. Yea, living, dying, let me bring my strength, my solace, from this spring, that he who lives to be my king, once died to be my savior. Now, so that's when he descended, but what about when he ascended? Where was his mind then? What was he thinking about? Oh, the angels were going to adore him, but was that his primary focus? Absolutely not. He was thinking about you. When the great sacrifice had been consummated, and Christ had ascended on high. Something absolutely amazing happened. The angel gathered around him. They wanted to worship and adore him, but he's like, no, no, stay back. Because there was one thing on his mind, and it was you. He refused the adoration of the angels until he presented his request. What was it? What did he want to request that was so important? He said, Father, my overwhelming desire is that they whom you have given me, be with me, be with us where we are. More important to Jesus than anything else, even after he left this earth, was that you could be there with him. Well, the Father answered with inexpressible love and power and said, let all the angels of God worship him. The love of God 
is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Oh, one last point. The gift given you is to be used, not to be kept back. As each one has received a gift, and we all have, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Unwrap your spiritual gift today, amen? It was given to be used. And go light your world.